Well, last Sunday, um, had the privilege to be in Charlotte with a, uh, in, it involved in ministry that God's called me to, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I serve as the director of football for FCA in the Midwest region and beyond, but in Charlotte, the American Football Coach Association Convention, 7,000 football coaches uh, running all over Charlotte in this convention, and, and last Sunday morning, FCA football hosted a worship service for those who would like to attend and had a room just full of coaches. Many of them had their wives with them. It was a joy to be with them, uh, but even as joyful it was to be with them in that moment, it's even a greater joy to be back here with, with our home church, with the, the body of Christ God's called us to serve with. Um, and if you're visiting with you, my name is Brian McKenzie. I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here uh, um, at the Potter's House. With some of those men you saw up here, we're missing a couple this morning that couldn't be here this morning, but to have, and also have the privilege to, uh, to deliver God's word often here at the Potter's House. So we're, we're so thrilled you're with us this morning, all of you, glad to be with you, and uh, so with that said, we're going to dive right in because we got a lot to cover, all right? So we are continuing our series in the letter called First Timothy that Paul wrote to his apprentice, his son in the faith, Timothy, and it's entitled Be Strong in Grace, and this morning uh, is part 36, and it's entitled Diagnosing false teachers, diagnosing false teachers. And if you have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, I would encourage you to turn there as we look at this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, here in just a few minutes. But before we do that, we also want to review, as we always do, we review what we covered last week, so we tie it into the whole picture of 1 Timothy and also tie it into what God has for us this morning. Uh, last week, Jay pointed out in these verses that Paul was instructing Timothy about slaves or how slaves should do church, right? That was the, the passage. And even as you're here this morning, if you weren't here last week, that makes, it just seems uncomfortable to say that, that Paul was writing Timothy to instruct slaves on how to do church. Does that, it, it doesn't sound right, does it? And I encourage you, if you weren't here, I'm going to review a little bit, if you weren't here, to go back and listen to that. And my guess is you'll hear that a little bit differently then you might be hearing it now. All right? but, 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 but that was what the, and Paul, and then Paul wondered out loud as he's, teach, as he's teaching, sending this letter to Timothy, he's out, wondering out loud whether it should make a difference to a slave whether or not his, his or her master believes in Jesus. He's just kind of thinking through that and he gives some instruction accordingly to Timothy. Well, to help us illustrate and really give context to 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2, Jay told us a story based on what the Old Testament teaches about slavery. Now, it wasn't an actual story. If you were here, he reminded us it wasn't an actual story, but it was a story that was based on truths right, found in the Old Testament, specifically Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15, that gives instruction to God's people of Israel how, to, how this whole slavery thing would work. So he took the principles from there, and, and Jay told us a story about a businessman named Jedaliah, which was such a good Old Testament name, Jay. It was just really good. Jedaliah. It's not in there. You won't find it, but that sounds like a one. Um, but, and Jedaliah, this businessman, borrowed a large amount of money to expand his business. And as he began to expand his business, it didn't go well. And he found himself unable to pay his uh, the one loaning him the money and his creditor. And his creditor, the man who loaned him the money, uh, contacted, him, contacted him after his own business started going south, and he needed him to pay him back right then. Now, this isn't a great situation to be in. 
Well, in order to pay back that loan, Jedaliah went to a wealthy landowner who wasn't struggling and asked the wealthy landowner to pay off his debt in exchange for Jedaliah committing to work for that wealthy landowner for three years to pay off that debt. Well, the, the landowner agreed. He gave him the money. He was able to go back to his, Jedaliah was go back to his creditor and pay off his debt, but he was enslaved in a sense his time was, if you remember, to this wealthy landowner for three years to work for him. And, and, and a year later, a woman named Hava made a similar agreement with the landowner, and uh, then they got to spend some time together, and Jedaliah looked and had eyes for Hava, and they got married and had two children. And uh, uh, when it came to time for Jedaliah, for him to be legally released after his three years, he instead decided to formally, publicly, legally, and physically make an agreement with the landowner to be his employee for the rest of his life. It's what we call a bond slave. That's what he, he made this agreement, that he, he was willingly going to do this for this landowner. And when Havilah's time came up, which she, she started a year later, hers came up a year later, her, her, her time to pay off the debt, um, when hers came up, she too agreed to willingly, willingly work for the landowner the rest of her life. And there was a whole ceremony went through in front of uh, the, the authorities. They, if you remember, they, 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 put it, uh, they put them up against the doorpost and um, stuck with an awl in the ear that made it mark on their ear or through their ear and also in the doorpost to remind them of this commitment that they had made. Um, and uh, so she decided to stay on and their kids obviously did too. So Jay told this story to help show us the context in which Paul is writing in 1 Timothy chapter 6 when he uses the word slave or servant, depending on your translation. That's the context he's writing in. That was, yes, the Old Testament, but also in the Jewish culture that was still happening. So when he's using the word slave, right, it's not like we hear the word slave. Instead, Paul is referring to what is called indentured servants who willingly agree to work for someone to pay back what had previously been given up front. They gave the money up front, and then they worked it off in a sense. He was also referring to bond slaves who didn't willingly stay, decided to stay on the rest of their life. And, and Jay made this clear, and I know the word slave still just doesn't sit well, especially in our country, but may, Jay made this very clear, that, Jay, that, we are, that he was, we should be ashamed that our country ever participated in the horror and injustice of slavery that put, took place in our country between the 17th and 19th centuries. Horrible. And, and that's why that word slave with all of us just doesn't sit right. But the context in 1 Timothy chapter 6 is different. It's more of an employee-employer relationship. It's an agreement they went into willingly. And Paul is talking again here about indentured servants. So Jay pointed out this kind of agreement could lend itself Right? This is why he had to address this to, to, to the slave being lazy. Okay, I've signed up for three years. I've already got the money. I've already paid back my debt, so I could sit back, put my, uh, my, my feet up, and not work real hard. Well, that's the temptation that the, that the slave could have. And, and the slave owner could have been tempted, well, hey, I've got him for three years. He's committed. I can work him like a dog. I can treat him terribly because he's committed for three years. Everybody knows it. He's legally committed. And there's that temptation for both of them to, to, to handle the situation wrongly. So that's why Paul needed to address this in verses 1 and 2. 
Uh, Jay also reminded us that throughout his letters, the Lord, through Paul, clearly teaches that those who are in Christ by faith have been set free, that we are no longer slaves to sin. Isn't that good news? We're no longer slaves to sin. But, but with that thought, and, and, and maybe a slave understanding that, oh, I'm not a slave to sin anymore, well, why should I be a physical slave? And maybe have the temptation to run away. And yet, and we know from the New Testament, there was one slave that had the temp- he gave in to temptation. His name is Philemon. It's a one-page book, letter in, 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 in our Bible. I encourage you to read it. Not right now, though. Okay, But Philemon, he did. He, he gave in to that temptation. He, he ran away from his landowner. Maybe some other things that went into there, but he did. Um, and, and when that happened, or if that would happen, a slave would run away. A Christian, a believing slave that was free from sin would run away from their slave. It, it would leave a blight on the gospel. It would not represent what the gospel was all about. It would not honor God. And Jay pointed out that's exactly what Paul addresses in verse 1. If you look there with me again, he said that all who are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. So important that they do what God had called them to do and, and stay and, 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 and keep their commitment. Jay also pointed out that the principle, this principle is true today. The, the quality or lack of quality by which we who are followers of Jesus, work for an unbeliever either positively or negatively impacts how that person and others view God and view the gospel. And it's still around today, how we work. I still remember a friend, I shared this with the elders a couple weeks ago, I think Jay, Jay was in there as well, and when we were talking about this passage, I still, a pastor friend of mine in Texas, been pastoring a long time, he had a businessman, an unbelieving businessman that he knew came to him during the week and said, hey, uh, um, and watch, well, he was a reverse. He went to a businessman. It was reversed. There was an unbeliever because one of the people from their church had said she was getting persecuted at work because she was a Christian. So the pastor went to this businessman that he knew who wasn't a believer and said, Hey, I heard you all are persecuting this lady who goes to our church who's a follower of Jesus Christ because she's a Christian. And the, the, un, the unbelieving businessman said, No, that's not the case. She's getting persecuted in a sense, or she's being called out because she's not working hard. She's lazy. She shows up late all the time, and she's always talking when she's supposed to be working. So my friend had to come back to the lady. No, that's not the issue. You're, you're, you're making a blight on the gospel because of your lack of work ethic. This is not you. You're not being persecuted because you're a Christian. A Christian would work hard in honor, whether a believer or an unbeliever. And how about if the employer is a believer in Jesus? Well, Paul addressed that in verse 2, and Jay pointed this out. Here, those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. Paul wanted the indentured slaves and us today to work in a way that prospers our brother or sister in Christ, that honors them as they honor Christ so that just as the Father gave Jesus the Son to rescue us from the penalty, power, and presence of sin, that that gospel did that would rescue us from a poor work ethic that would not honor our brother or sister in Christ. Well, therefore, employees, employers are to value each other like God values them. And Jay pointed this out, it was so good. How much did God value us? He valued us so much, not because of anything inherently good in us, right? But 
He valued us so much because his son died in our place. He gave his son so that we could be valued. Well, with that review, it's now time to turn our attention to our passage this morning. So if you would stand with me, as we normally do, and read this passage of Scripture with me, taken from 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. Read this with me. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to guidelines, he is conceited and understands nothing but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that you, as we look into your word this morning, that you would enlighten our minds and our hearts to understand what you are saying to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we dive in and look at what this passage is teaching, let me first remind you of one more thing. This is still kind of in a way we review, but it's going to tie things together. Last week, Jay began, as he began teaching on 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, he reminded us of the big picture, the big story, what we call the meta-narrative of 1 Timothy, and, and we find kind of the overview of what 1 Timothy is all about in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, which Jay pointed us to. Let me read this again. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that, I love so that's, here's the purpose, so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Paul wants Timothy and the church at Ephesus to know how to do church. Jay reminded us of that last week. He also reminded us that the theme that Paul lays out, this is the theme that Paul lays out that helps tie everything together in 1 Timothy, especially those times when you think, well, that kind of came out of left field. Where did he come up? How does that fit in here? Well, just remember the whole, one of the big purposes, the theme of Paul writing Timothy is so that we would know how to do church, how we ought to conduct ourselves in church. And that helps us maybe pull some of these obscure passages and say, well, this kind of came out of nowhere. Well, he's addressing, and we've seen in the last few weeks, how he's addressing our relationship with people, right? From older people, younger people, widows, elders, slaves, masters, all that. And and this all fits in because he's teaching us how to conduct ourselves in the right way in the household of God. And one of the things that Paul reminds Timothy um, and and the church of Ephesus and, and us about throughout this letter is the fact that there are false teachers in and among the church at Ephesus. This holds true for the church as a whole today. There are false teachers in and among God's church today. Paul addresses false teachers in 1 Timothy explicitly in passages such as chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. He's addressing explicitly. Everybody knows he's talking about false teachers in those those verses, 1, 3 through 7. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, he's addressing explicitly false teachers. Teachers. And here in our passage today, verses 3 through 5 of chapter 6, he's explicitly addressing false teachers. But he also does it implicitly. I mean, he, it's implied that he's talking about false teachers. He does it when he does it, deals with the qualifications of elders and deacons to let the false teachers know that they're not qualified. 
and let the people know that there are certain things you have to be qualified uh, to be an elder or deacon. He, he, he implies uh, false teachers being there and teaching all types of people can be saved. There's no hierarchy. There's no special people that get to be saved and some don't get to. All types of people, which went against some of the things the false teachers were teaching. And, and the way, as I just mentioned, the way we honor all types of people. All people are valued in the sight of God, aren't they? We've learned that. From old to young, widows, elders, whatever, they're all valued inside of God. Those are implicit ways in which Paul points, points out uh, there are false teachers among them. And these are different than what the false teachers would have taught. And, and just to let you know, the elders of the church at Ephesus should not have been just surprised that Paul brought this up. That, and that as Timothy read this letter to them, they wouldn't be going, man, where's this coming from, Paul? I mean, this is like out of the blue. Nope. If you remember, we brought this up three or four times if we, as we've taught through 1 Timothy. Paul had this meeting with uh, the elders of Ephesus at Miletus, um, and he, he, called the, he called them to meet him in Miletus. And in this meeting, notice what he tells them once again in Acts 20, verse 20 through 32. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my de departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each, each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. See, Paul loves the people at the church of Ephesus. He spent more time with the church of Ephesus than any other church. So, so up to two and a half to three years he spent with these people. He knows them. He knew these elders, and he wanted to warn them because he loves them. He didn't want them to be led astray by false teachers. And in much the same way, Jay and myself and the other elders here at the Potter's House love you. We do love you. And we don't want you to be led astray by the false teachers in our world today. Therefore, Jay and I sometimes joke about who, who gets different passages. And there's some more difficult passages than others in 1 Timothy. And, and this is one of those passages that, you know, kind of, okay, who wants to get this one? And we're, oh, we're both going to be out of town. Uh, you, 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 Curtis, you're up. All right? Uh, so that's, this, this is a hard passage. But you know what? We love you enough to teach it to teach it, to, to protect you from false teachers. And, and, and I will say that before we dive in the, in, into the passage. This is, this is a hard, it's, it's going to be hard to hear some of these things. Let's put it that way. It's difficult in that way, but it's not difficult to understand. It's not difficult to understand. I love Mark Twain. I've said this before. Mark Twain says this about the Bible. It's not the passage of Scripture that I don't understand that give me problems. It's the passage that I do understand. All right? And this is one of those clear passages, but it's difficult. All right, but before we dive specifically into verses 3 through 5, I want you to think with me about what happens when we go to the doctor. Right? When we go to the doctor. When you, when you go to the doctor, you, you, you go in, you sign in, they take your insurance card, all that kind of stuff. We know that. And then you get back to the exam room. And into the exam room comes a nurse. 
But my daughter's trained to be a nurse right now, so this just kind of reminds me of what she's going through with all her testing and those kind of things. And, but, but the nurse usually asks us some questions about how our feet, we're feeling, what our symptoms are, and writes that down, or now they type it all into a computer. Uh, then the nurse takes our vitals, right, our body temperature, our pulse rate, our respiration rate, um, our blood pressure, and, and sometimes they even take our blood oxygen. Uh, the nurse does this to begin this process of making a diagnosis of what might be wrong with us. So they're evaluating. And then the doctor comes in. And the doctor comes in and begins examining us, and, and usually the results of the vital signs, all right, and, and the doctor's examination begin to lead the doctor to some conclusions, maybe a, 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 some kind of diagnosis. If the doctor is not sure what the diagnosis is then, what does the doctor do? Well, just prescribes an antibiotic, Right? Supposed to laugh, yeah. No, no, they don't. They don't do it as much as they used to. But uh, you get a Z pack, right? A Z pack for everything. Uh, but no, that's not what happens. But they usually give more tests. You may get some blood tests and some other kinds of all kinds of tests. I've had all those tests. All right, just trying to get the right diagnosis of what's going on. And a diagnosis to remind us is the identification of the nature of an illness or another problem by examination of the symptoms. Right, they're trying to come up with a diagnosis, trying to find out what's wrong by evaluating and examining the symptoms. And we all agree that getting a proper diagnosis of a physical illness is critical. If you've ever, ever had a wrong diagnosis, you know how critical it is. It, it, in fact, it may be the difference between life and death if you get the wrong diagnosis. But I would propose to you that Paul is addressing here, what he's addressing here in verses 3 through 5, is much more important than getting the diagnosis of a physical illness correct. In verses 3 through 5, Paul is dealing with diagnosis of false teachers. In other words, being able to identify the problem of false teachers by examination of the symptoms they present. Being able to properly diagnose false teachers is not the difference between life and death. Let me say this, really important. Being able to diagnose, all right, the symptoms and diagnose, the, the, the diagnose what false teachers are, it's not the difference between life and death. No, it's the difference between eternal life and eternal death. This is way more important that we understand how to diagnose and read the symptoms right. Well, as we examine here these three verses here in 1 Timothy 6 this morning, the Lord through Paul will present five symptoms of false teachers so that, so why does he do this? Why does he present these symptoms? So that we can properly diagnose them when they come our way and resist their error. So here are the five truths. All right, here's the five symptoms that we'll see. The teaching of the false teachers the attitude of the false teachers, the divisiveness of the false teachers, the root of the false teachers, and the motive of the false teachers. Those are the five symptoms that we're going to see here in this passage this morning. So if you would, look with me at uh, verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the, with the doctrine of conformity to godliness... Right? It's in these words that we see the first symptom of false teachers, the teaching of false teachers. What is it they teach? What are they teaching? What is the content of their teaching? Look with me at the first word. You're thinking this is going to be a long message. Right? We're going word by word. Yeah, the first word is the word, what's the first word there? Help me. If. Okay, now I'm going to just throw this out here 
this is not trying to impress you, but it's important. This is in a first-class condition. If is in the first class, what does that mean? So when something's in the first class condition, it assumes it to be true. So might better understand it. since. I'm going to say if. It's not, it's not a probability. It's already happening. If anyone, and then does these things, okay, since there are people who are doing these things, that's, that's how it's meant to be understood. It's happening. It's not a possibility. It's really happening. There are false teachers present in Ephesus. There are false teachers even today. Now look at the next phrase there in verse 3. Advocates a different doctrine. Advocates means to teach or promote. Right? They're, they're teaching a different doctrine. They're promoting a different doctrine. Uh, the, the, the same phrase is actually used in 1 Timothy 1.3. Uh, it says, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Different doctrines. Strange doctrines. Uh, false doctrines, some of the translations say. So the teaching of the false teachers is different. It's false. Well, how is it different or false? I, I love Paul just kind of lays this out. Look at the next phrase. Does not agree with sound words. It, it's different. It's false because it, it doesn't agree with sound words. Uh, and, and this, just to throw this out, this is in the present tense, in t- indicating that continually do not agree with sound words. The, 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 the hallmark of a false teacher is they continually disagree with what is true. It's just part of who they are. They didn't just do it one time, but they're continually disagreeing with the truth and presenting something to be something that's false. And the word sound here actually derives from the word where we get hygiene. This is, this is where we get the word hygiene from this word sound. False teachers, they're teaching things that aren't healthy. Put it that way. They teach things that are not healthy. And, and those, as they teach those things and people begin to grasp things, those unhealthy things begin to manifest in the false teacher's life and those who are being led astray. And how, how do we know what is, what's not healthy? Well, look at the next phrase in verse 3. Those of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the barometer, right? How we know what is sound or healthy words and what are not sound or healthy words. And, and this phrase, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, can be understand, understood in a few different ways. First, it can refer to teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he told the apostles that he would, all right, lead them to all truth, all right? So he's teaching about Jesus Christ, that he, what they would, he would teach them, they could teach about him, he could te- they could teach others. Second, it could refer to teaching by the Lord Jesus Christ. Teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ or teaching by the Lord Jesus Christ, words he actually spoke while on earth. And, and third, it can refer to teaching commissioned by Jesus through the apostles, which includes everything Paul wrote in this letter we're studying right now. And including what we just studied last week about slaves, all right? That, that, that this is the barometer. It's, it's Jesus. So, so, so what is it? What's the answer here? Uh, which three of those? Is it, is it about, by, or commissioned? Yes. Yeah, all of them. It, it, it is about him. It's by him. It's things that were commissioned by him. I, I, I just want to make mention of this very quickly here because this is so important. Often people will take, and please don't hear me getting on red-lettered editions of the Bible if you've got one. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's not it's showing what Jesus spoke. Um, but people will like to pit what Jesus spoke against maybe what Paul wrote over here or what Peter wrote over here. Well, Jesus said this, and Peter and Paul said this, and you know, I, I go with Jesus. Well, hey, listen to this. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All Scripture 
Jesus wrote it all, Genesis to Revelation. So we can't pit this against this. Jesus is the author of the whole book. So it's all Jesus' words. It's all what Jesus teaches, the whole book. So be careful when somebody does that, because people do it all the time. And false teachers like to do it for sure. They want to pull something out, and they want to pit those who Jesus commissioned and called and taught against Jesus. That's not what Scripture teaches. Well, uh, again, he, he's talking here about all that he taught, all that he said, all that he commissioned. Um, and, and there was an agreed standard. Listen, there was an agreed standard this time of what truth was. And its source was found in Jesus. I, I love what Jude writes in Jude 1.3. Look what he writes. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about your, our common salvation, I felt necessary to write to you appealing with you, you appealing that you contend earnestly, listen, for the faith was which once for all handed down to the saints. The faith that was once for all. It doesn't change, he's saying. It's once for all handed down to the saints. And when you go read the letter of Jude, he's talking about, he's dealing with false teachers. And he's telling them, you need to hold on to the faith that was once delivered to the saints. There is a standard. There is the faith, the standard of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he taught, what he commissioned to taught, what he said. All of that. At the heart of these sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ is the gospel. The good news that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. That he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to Scriptures. That's the heart of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news that although we are sinful and deserve the just wrath of God for our sin, God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus, to pay the penalty of our sin so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. That is the heart of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. And there's many things that could, we could constitute as false teaching. I'm just going to throw some up here. We're not going to spend a lot of time on these because we could do like a whole sermon series on this. But these are other things that, that would be considered false teaching. Denying the deity of Christ, which means that Jesus is God. Denying the incarnation, that he was truly God and truly man. Denying the Trinity, denying the virgin birth, denying the sin, that Jesus was, lived a sinless life, denying Jesus' bodily resurrection, denying that he is coming again. It's interesting, you go through all, the, 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 especially the epistles, the letters, and the, and the apostles are having to deal with all these things that are being taught that are false. All right? De denying, I'm going to throw this out there, the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus. What does that mean? Pen penal penalized. Jesus was penalized in the place of sinners. That sub, as pe penalized, he was a substitute, all right, thus satisfying the demand of the justice of God in order to forgive sin. That's what that means. To deny that is, is false. That's what the, the scripture teaches from the beginning to the end. Uh, to deny the inerrancy of scripture, like I was just talking about. Well, you know, this part over here is a little more true than this part. And this part, I just kind of don't like all of this, so I'm going to leave half of that out. No, it's all true. It's all true. So, and, and, and in reality, when you deny any of these, and there's other ones, but these are kind of critical ones, deny any of these, you're undermining and ultimately denying the gospel. Well, the inerrancy of Scripture, that's not big a deal. Where do we find out about the gospel? Hey, if it's not true on what God says about this, then how can we be sure that what we have is the gospel? You can't. So deny any of these is ultimately denying and undermining the gospel. And we know that the gospel was being undermined by the opponents, the false teachers, uh, 
And we know this from what they were doing in, in 1 Timothy 1, 6 through 11 and, and, and 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, where Paul calls them out for using the law wrongly. Using the law wrongly. He, he calls them out. They were teaching that faith plus doing the law is what made a person right with God. Anybody got a problem with that? Besides me? Yeah, I got a problem with that, yeah. That's what they were teaching, and we see that throughout 1 Timothy. Is they were teaching that it's faith in Jesus, that Jesus thing is really good, but you gotta do some more to be made right with God. Yet all of Scripture, Old Testament, listen really closely, and New Testament, both, it's not different, Old and New Testament, clearly teaches we are made right with God by faith alone in the Messiah, in his death, burial, and resurrection. That is what the Old Testament teaches, and that's what the New Testament teaches. That's always getting God's plan, always. And the false teachers taught something different. Remember, I've given you this math equation before, right? Faith in Jesus plus nothing equals justification, being made right with God. Faith in Jesus plus nothing equals being made right with God. There's another equation that really sums up all false teaching. Faith in Jesus plus anything else equals condemnation. Faith in Jesus plus anything else to make yourself right with God equals condemnation. There's also a spelling thing. Like these are only, you know, it's, you know what do you say, writing, arithmetic, and whatever, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic. So we got them all here, right? All right, we're going to read a little bit here. So it's the difference between D-O and D-O-N-E. It's not what we do, D-O, that makes us right with God. It's what God has done in Christ, D-O-N-E, that makes us right with God, period, period. And the false teachers were spreading a lie that it was more than that. It wasn't, never has been. Now notice in verse 3, this next phrase, and with the doctrine conforming to godness. What the false teaching, teachers are teaching doesn't lead to a godly life. It doesn't lead to a holy life that's set apart from sin. The fact that the true gospel leads to godliness is an emphasis of Paul's throughout 1 Timothy. He uses the word godliness nine times in 1 Timothy. If you ever go through and you highlight something, okay, what's Paul emphasizing? This would be one of those words that would stand out, godliness. You see, the false teachers' teaching produced the opposite of godliness, clear from our immediate context, which we're going to see, and First and Second Timothy. So in summary here, Paul contrasts the teaching of the opponents with what he and Timothy were teaching. What they were teaching was wrong. It doesn't center on the person and work of Christ, and it doesn't produce healthy and godly living. That's the, the teaching of the false teachers. Now look with me at verse 4. Oops, go back there. Specifically that phrase there. He is conceited and understands nothing. Here we see in these words a second symptom of false teachers, the attitude of false teachers. Paul says that false teachers are conceited. It's literally the word means puffed up, prideful, full. We would say they're full of hot air in our, in our slang today. They're just full of hot air. They're, they're arrogant. This word carries that idea. And it's in the perfect tense. All right, A perfect tense is something that's completed. It's a completed action. All right, past action, completed action with their soul to state of being, it's not going to change. It's a permanent condition that they have, and, they, and they, they're, they're, they're always arrogant. They're always conceited. Paul then couples these words, conceited, with and understands nothing. They are, listen, they are conceited or prideful about nothing. 
they have nothing to be conceited or prideful about. I mean, sometimes you, you can be, you know, in a good way, be prideful. Man, I'm, pr- I'm proud of my kid's son. I'm proud of my daughter. I'm proud of our church. I mean, that, that's a good, but th- this is not the good kind of pride. And they have nothing to be prideful about, nothing to be conceited about, nothing to be puffed up about. Um, I, I love one translation. It just sums up that both of those phrases, puts them together and says they're foolish. But my favorite one, all right, I, I love this one. I, my favorite by J.B. Phillips says they're conceited idiots. I like that. That's what false teachers are. They're conceited about nothing. They don't, don't understand anything. And you know what? Paul dealt with this in chapter 1, verse 7. Look what he says about him. Wanting to be teachers of all, it's about the false teachers, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they are making confident assertions. They're conceited and they understand nothing. Here's, here's a sure sign. False teacher, you can't question a false teacher because they know everything. And as soon as you question them, you'll be ostracized and be pushed out. They don't want to learn. There's no humility there at all. A false teacher will say, this is like it is, and this is the only way it is, and there's no other way, and it'll be way off. We've already seen what they're, what they're off on, right? And they won't even take questions. You see that come out, this, this, this puffed up, this pride. They, they're not even willing to talk about maybe where their error where their error is well we've now examined the first symptoms the first two symptoms of false teachers the teaching of false teachers and the attitude of false teachers now look with me at the remainder of verses four and five here uh but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Here we see the third symptom of false teachers, the divisiveness of false teachers. False teachers do not bring unity among God's people. You, you ever been there? You ever seen that? False teachers don't bring unity among God's people around the gospel. They bring division. They bring division. Notice the word morbid interest, or it's, it's actually the word an unhealthy. We talked about healthy earlier. It's unhealthy. It's sick. sick. That contrasts with the, what God's word is. It's, it's sound words. They're healthy words. Right? And what do false teachers uh, have an, an unhealthy interest in? What's their unhealthy interest in? Look what it says. Controversial questions and disputes about words. The very thing that Paul exhorts Timothy to avoid at the end of this letter. Look at verse 20. The very, there's a second to last letter, verse in this whole letter. It says, O Timothy, guard what has been trusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. He says, don't get caught up into all that. He, he, we'll see it later, too, and he'll say this in 2 Timothy, he warns him about getting caught up in all these arguments and pe- these controversial questions and disputes about words. Also, this is the opposite of how an elder is supposed to act. 1 Timothy 3.3 says they're to be peaceable, not divisive, not arguing and disputing. Also, um, the false teachers, they they just want to argue about anything. Now, please don't say someone's a false teacher if there's one of those people who'd like to argue about anything. Okay, that's not necessarily what we're saying here. But a false teacher, this will be part of it. I mean, if you you say that the sky's blue, no, they'll say it's red. They're just going to argue, right? And, and, And the they even argue, this is one that really gets me, about the pronunciation of Hebrew and Greek words. Who in here has ever taken any Hebrew or Greek? All right, we have some people in here I know taking some Hebrew and Greek. All right, we have a few, few, okay, some Hebrew and Greek. We take some Hebrew and Greek, all right? 
And uh, they argue about the pronunciation. Like in the Old Testament, these, you, you got to make sure that you say Yahweh just the right way. Yahweh. You know, there's no, there's no vowels in Yahweh. We just threw vowels in there so we could pronounce it. Are you kidding? That's God's name. It's Y-H-W-H. Right? That's all, those are the four letters we've tr- transliterated in their English. All right? There's not even vowels there. We, we're not sure exactly how it's pronounced. But some people, oh, you don't pronounce it right. That's the, the God would call it. Or the different feasts and all the names. Hey, they, they are in Hebrew, but we don't really know exactly how they're pronounced back when the Hebrew language began. We don't know. Like any language, things change, right? I mean, I went to England in 1990. That's not too long ago. And I learned real quickly, I spoke American, they spoke English. Language changes and even the pronunciation of things. The, the same with the word Greek. Is it logos or logos? Which is it? Which means the, it's the word, right? I hear some people pronounce logos. Well, if you don't pronounce it logos, well, then you're just you're the devil. I mean, so that's just what false teachers, they'll, they'll take and they'll twist words. They'll dispute about words. Something that's silly. I, have a, I love this. This is Kentucky. All right, you, you all, many of you know I'm from Kentucky. So my parents live in Lexington, Kentucky. And growing up, I didn't grow up there. I grew up close to it. So I knew about this high school called Lafayette. Lafayette High School. And then my parents moved to western Kentucky in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. My dad was a pastor there. And they had a, a rogue called Lafayette. And I'm looking for Lafayette Road. Well, I kept passing Lafayette. You know, well, which is it, La- Lafayette or Lafayette. Who cares? But that's what a false teacher will do, I'm telling you. I've been in conversations with them, and they'll bring up these words, and they're, they're smarter than all of us, you know. Most of them haven't had Hebrew or Greek, but they say they have because they, read, they, they knew a Greek that had a restaurant or something like that, all right? So they, they get it. It's silly, but that's what happens. We've got to be careful about that, all right? And what does all this arguing dispute lead to? Look what it says there back in our passage. Envy. It leads to envy. We resent other people and their gifts. They, they, they'll resent other people and their gifts and their successes. Strife. Have a spirit of competition, uh, competition and contention. Abusive language. Some translations say slander. They'll use their tongue to attack others. Ooh, that's, that's what this leads to. All right, the, the false teachers. Evil suspicions. They question the heart and motive of others, and they always think someone's after them. They're just like, all these conspiracies, they're all after me. Right? Well, maybe they're after you because you're off. You're, you're wrong about the gospel. And, and then that leads to verse 5. Look at the beginning of verse 5. Constant friction. They're d- irritable. Just, just irritable. Just, just, they just rub you the wrong way, and they're trying to rub you the wrong way. They're always promoting their heresy, and they're just going to get up, and they're just going to rub you the wrong way. Bottom line, false teachers and their ways leads to divisiveness. The Lord, through James, defines this kind of teaching and this divisiveness well when he writes in 3.15, the wis- this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. That's what false teachers are all about. Earthly, natural, and demonic. Well, the gospel should unite God's people, not divide, right? That's what should, should the gospel should unite, unite us, not divide us. We've seen three symptoms so far here of the false teachers, and we're getting ready. To, these last two will be a lot shorter, but they're still powerful. We've seen the, the teaching of false teachers, the attitude of false teachers, the divisiveness of false teachers, and look with me in verse 5, the middle part. Men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. And here's the fourth symptom, the root of the false teachers. Notice the word depraved mind. I mean, depraved means corrupt, and it's in the perfect tense. Again, 
It's a permanent condition. Only God could change this. Paul speaks about this kind of mind in Romans 8 when when he writes, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. False teachers' minds are hostile to God. And ironically, they think that they are rightly teaching about the law of God and yet they don't subject themselves to the law of God. But they're teaching right about it. Their depraved mind will not allow them to do so. Now notice the next phrase in our past, deprived of the truth. This phrase indicates a willful rejecting of the truth. Not that somebody's trying to keep it from them. It's something that they've heard and they've willfully rejected it. Right? And it's too in the perfect, uh, uh, the perfect tense, meaning it's a permanent condition. Again, only God could change this. The root or the cause of false teachers consists of the depraved mind and deprived of the truth. And the natural flow from them, this depraved mind and deprived of the truth, will be what we have already seen in the previous verses. Paul teaches on the natural outflow of this, this depraved mind and deprived from the truth when he teaches in Galatians 5, 19 through 20. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Listen, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. Sound familiar? Well, right out of what we just read. And also envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this, of which I forewarned you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, now we've covered four symptoms of false teachers. The teaching, the attitude, the visiveness, and the root of false teachers. Look with me at the last phrase there in our passage. Who suppose that godliness is a means of great gain. And here we see the fifth symptom of false teachers. The motive of false teachers. What is the motive of false teachers? They are motivated by money. And, and, and most likely power. Now, why do I say money? Well, money is clear because of our passage. Verses 6 through 10 are talking about riches, about money. Uh, so he, when he says about gain, we're going to see the next week's passage that Jay will deal with. But godliness actually is means of great gain. And then he'll talk about actually money. They're, they're motivated by money and, and the power that comes with it. The false teachers ironically see godliness as a means of great gain. Let me say it ironically. They ironically see, God, ironically see godliness as a means of great gain. Why? Well, their godliness was false. It was a put on. It was only outward in their speech. They just said certain things. Remember if we talked about back in chapter 4, they abstained from certain foods. Well, if you don't eat this, you're a little more holy than somebody else. If you were to be right with God, made right, right with God abstain from this. And, and they forbid marriage. And yet we'll find out in 2 Timothy that they were pursuing all the young widows and pursuing young w- women, and most likely sexually. But they forbid marriage. See, it was all an outward put on to try to make money. Peter addresses this, their motives of the false teachers. I love this. I wish we had time to go in this uh, to, to what he's referring to. But 2 Peter 3.15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And Balaam was basically a prophet for hire. He was a prophet for hire. He was motivated, hey, give me a little money, and then I'll tell you what you, you need to hear. That was, and that's basically what Peter's pointing out here. Uh, false teachers have no real interest in true godliness, just superficial godliness, if it fills their pockets and their por- por- portfolios. That's what they're about. Well, the Lord through Paul has graciously pointed out these five symptoms of false teachers so we can make a proper diagnosis and not, uh, and not be led astray. 
And just to sum it up, by rejecting the true gospel, these false teachers who were within the church are conceited idiots. I'm sorry, I just had to put that in there because it was so good. All right. And know nothing, which leads to arguing about words, which leads to envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, which produces constant friction flowing from depraved mind and rejects the truth all to make some money. That sums up a false teacher. And that's what Paul is getting warning because he loves the people. So how can we respond to God's word this morning? How do we respond to all that? Well, how can we make sure that we're, we're properly, we can properly recognize the symptoms of false teachers so we can make a proper diagnosis that they are false and flee from them, confront them when necessary, because sometimes that has to happen, which we've already seen in 1 Timothy, and warn others to flee from them? How can we be assured that we can recognize these symptoms? Well, Paul actually told the Ephesian elders and us how to do this to make sure that we can properly recognize the symptoms of false teachers back in Acts 20 in his time with them. Look there in verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. We can assure ourselves of properly recognizing the symptoms of false teachers by getting into God's word. Let me ask if you've heard this, this question around here. Do you have a plan? Do you have a plan to daily get into God's word? To read it, to study it, to meditate on it, to talk about it with others? Do, do you have a plan? And here's the other question. Are you working your plan? Are you carrying out the plan that you have? Paul here commends them. Here's, here's how, because he's talking about false teachers. He tells them, hey, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. And if we're going to recognize these symptoms in false teachers, we've got to be in the book. We've got to be in the book. I love what at our, our breakfast last Monday morning, 500, about 500 football coaches from around the country, and we gave a award to the FC Football Coach of the Year from Syracuse University, Dino Babers, and, and his, he ended with this. Coaches, if I could challenge you with anything, Get in the book. Get in the book. It'll change your life. It's changed mine. He talked about how he's read through the Bible the last five years, every year. Change your life. And I'm encouraging you, our people here, to get in the book. Have a plan. Work the plan. I commend you to God and the word of his grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it is your word, that it is the word of grace, and, Lord, that you give it to us so that we can live a life that honors you, that we can share the good news of the gospel, that we can also see error. We can see those who are promoting something that is different than the gospel, different from the sound words that are of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us this week. Lord, to, to, if we've missed a day, Lord, you're not keeping count. Lord, just help us pick back up where we left off and just keep going and trusting you to use your word to conform us to the image of your son and be able to warn about those who aren't teaching the true gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as I read this benediction, this blessing from God's word over us from Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all peace, joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Blessings, you're dismissed.